Uh, I'm excited about getting into God's Word this morning. I love what God has been doing among us for the last, really, four or five weeks. He's just been pouring out in a fresh way. Uh, and so if you're new, maybe you're visiting New Beginnings today, or you've just come a few times, and you're like, I'm not really sure what's, what's going on. Here's what I can tell you. Two years ago, we began to pray that God would move, that He would bring revival and spiritual awakening. And while we have seen that show up in unique ways over those two years, the last four or five weeks, He's poured out in a unique way. And, um, uh, and it isn't just happening at New Beginnings. I, I want to tell you, family, I want you to know we're seeing God move in power all over our country right now. We really are. Many of you have prayed that God would do a work in our nation. I want you to know you may not see it, but it's happening. It's happening in universities. It's happening in churches that haven't felt the presence of God in years. Hundred, I'm talking, we've, we've, we've talked with churches that in one Sunday didn't get out until two or three in the afternoon because a hundred plus people got saved and they baptized every one of them. I, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about on university campuses, not good Christian colleges. I'm talking about state-run universities where kids are getting honest about their sin and praying for one another and getting freedom. That's revival, right? So we're seeing God move. We're seeing God answer these prayers, and we've seen Him move this way here at New Beginnings. And what we've been asking ourselves is, all right, God, if this is how you're pouring out, we don't want you to stop pouring out, right? Why would we want Him to cease pouring out on us in a, in a unique way like this? And why would he stop pouring out on us if what he finds here is a people who have humbled themselves and kept their hearts postured in a position of receiving and humility from the Lord? Why would he stop? Right? What will cause the manifest presence to cease dwelling with us is when the posture of our heart changes. And our, all of a sudden pride comes in and we're no longer in that place of submission to him. So the question is, how do we stay here? Right? How do we stay yielded to God? He's moving. How do we keep in step with Him? Galatians 5 says, if what we want is life in the Spirit, then we have to keep in step with the Spirit. Yes. How do we do that? How do we do that? So we begin this series called His Presence. Really just going, all right, what is the presence of God? Why is it so important that we dwell with Him and are filled with Him and how is it that we can make his presence the pursuit of our life? Why should the manifest presence of God be the primary pursuit in the life of every believer? That's what this is about, and that's really what we're going to look at today. Message for today is this, his presence, our pursuit. His presence, our pursuit. We're going to be in James 4. If you want to grab your Bible and head to James 4, um, I love the book of James. I love, uh, it, James is the brother of Jesus, um, and James writes very practically. I don't know that there is a more practical book of the Bible uh, for the believer than the book of James. Now, here's what I want to tell you. I mean, this is where we hear things like, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, right? Boy, that's, that's, that is meat and potatoes for the life of the believer. This is where he says things like, um, if your faith isn't producing good work, it's a dead faith, right? Boy, that means our faith ought to be doing something. There ought to be an outpouring. This is, James is the one who says, the tongue is like a consuming fire. And if you don't tame your tongue, it has the ability to build up or to burn down, right? 
This is where you get that. This is also where we hear things from James like, um, is any one of you sick? And he gives us very practical steps. Call the elders, have them come and anoint you and pray. This is where we get practical teaching on dealing with our sin. He says, confess your sin to one another and then pray for one another because when we are honest in confession and we pray for one another, God begins to move in power. This is all in this five chapters of this little book of James. It's very practical, very powerful. And here's what I want to tell you. Uh, James does not write in poetry, right? You read David. This is not the Psalms. Here's what I mean. Sometimes James says some things and you're going, okay, that dude is a hammer and everything looks like a nail, right? That's the way it feels sometimes in the book of James. And uh, there'll be a few moments like that this morning. But it is very practical. It's very helpful. And what we're going to see this morning is, is a framework for what it means for us to pursue the presence of God in prayer. So we're going to be in James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 8. If you're there, I want to hear you say the Bible is true. It is true. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I want us to see right away here in these three verses that there's really one command and the rest of it is how we do the one thing. I want you to let your heart dwell on the first four words of James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. This is the great command of these verses. The rest of verse 8, verse 9 and 10 are how we do this. But the command of the day for God's people is this. Draw near to God. To God. And that I need our hearts to unite around this reality before we take another step. I need our hearts to get united around this reality. God, this is not, draw near to God is not presented to us as a suggestion for a better life. It is presented to us as a command for life in the Spirit. This is a command that God has given every single believer. Draw near to me. This is the calling of God on every believer's life. No one is exempt. So I want you to hear me say, this is not a suggestion for your life to be better. This is a command for life in the Spirit. Are you with me? Draw, I feel like some of you aren't. Listen, this is where we're going to be all morning, okay? Lean toward me. Not away from me. Draw near to God. This is a command. God desires that we would draw near to him, that we would experience his presence in a powerful and a unique way. Now, I want to be clear, because as we've experienced God moving and we've prayed for his manifest presence to fall and we've experienced him and we've started this, this series called His Presence and We've had people say, and, and I get it, they're like, well, wait a minute, isn't God omnipresent, right? How many of you have heard that word before, omnipresent? What does that mean? 
Omnipresent means that God is at all times, in all places, everywhere, all the time. That's what the omnipresence of God means. He's at all times, in all places, everywhere, all the time. There is no place that exists where God's omnipresence is not there. We see that in Psalm 139, right? Look at, just follow me, Psalm 139. It'll be on the screen. Verse 7, the psalmist says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is the omnipresence of God. There is at all times, in all places, everywhere, all the time, God is present. Here's what that means. The omnipresence of God is in every church, every school, every every courthouse, every home, every park, every, every bar, every casino, every house of worship, no matter what God they are worshiping, God is there. He's omnipresent. The question that we've been asked is, well, if God is at all places, at, in all places at all times, why do we have to seek His presence? Why do we have to seek His presence? And I want to answer that by saying what we see clearly demonstrated and declared and emphasized in Scripture is that there is a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. There is the omnipresence, the everywhere, all the time, at all times, in all places, dwelling of God and then there is the manifest presence of God. And what I want you to hear me say, family, is we were meant for more than the omnipresence of God. We are meant to know and enjoy the manifest presence of God. We're meant to know and enjoy. I would actually say uh, for life in God, we require His manifest presence. Can't live without it. Nathan Lino, who is a, a pastor at First Baptist Forney, and he's become a good friend to New Beginnings and really journeyed with us in this time of prayer and revival over the last two years. He said this, if there isn't anything more to God's presence than his omnipresence, then James 4, 8 doesn't make sense. I go, yeah, I guess that's true. Right? If the extent of God's presence is that he's in all places at all times, then why would he command us to draw near to him. Why would he promise to draw near to us? There has to be something more than the omnipresence of God that we need. So I want you to think about a few things with me for a moment. We won't dwell here. These things, uh, as, as um, I heard him speak about the presence of God, I thought, yeah, that makes so much sense. Listen, for just a moment, think about this. If the omnipresence of God is all there is to the presence of God, then why does it matter that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? Think about that for a moment. You remember, in, you read Genesis 1 through 3, what happens? They sinned, they rebelled, they, God expelled them from the garden. Well, what we know is God's omnipresence was in the garden and it was out of the garden. So what did they lose if there's nothing more to God's presence than his omnipresence? What they lost was the manifest personal dwelling of the presence of God with them, Right? 
If the omnipresence of God is all there is to the presence of God, then why did Israel need the manifest presence of God to fill the tabernacle and to fill the temple? Why did it matter that that cloud would settle before the door? Why did it matter that he would descend and and the foundations would shake when he showed up? Because there's something more, right? If the omnipresence of God is all there is to the presence of God, then why in Luke 11 does Jesus say, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking for more of the Holy Spirit? If the omnipresence of God is all there is to the presence of God, then why in Ephesians 3 Verse 14 through 19, does Paul say, I am praying for these believers, these Holy Spirit sealed believers. I am praying that they would know more and more of the fullness of God. Why? Because there is something more. If the omnipresence of God is all there is to the presence of God, then why in Revelation 3 does Jesus say to the church at Laodicea, I am standing on the outside and I knock on the door. And if you will open this door, I will come in and I will dwell with you. I will give you my presence. There is something more that we require. I would say this, there is something more that he intends for us to have. God wants to give us his manifest presence. Now, what is that? Right? Great. That's a Beautiful, spiritual, churchy word. What is the manifest presence of God? I believe God's manifest presence is when He actively and unmistakably moves among His people in a moment or in a season. He actively and unmistakably moves among us, right? It's when His presence is made clear His presence is undeniable. How many of you can say, I have been in a a service or I have been in a prayer meeting where I know the presence of God showed up, right? You want to know why you know that? Because it's undeniable when God's manifest presence enters a room, right? I'm talking about his presence that is, it's, it's that felt presence of God. It's the personal presence of God. I believe it's the measurable, known presence. This is when God comes near. And it's what James is talking about in James chapter 4. There's two things I want us to see regarding prayer and the manifest presence of God from James chapter 4 this morning. Here's where we're going to begin. It's this. Prayer is ultimately about pursuing the manifest presence of God. Are there other things involved in prayer? Yes, there are. When we pray, we confess our sin. When we pray, we give praise to Him. When we pray, we acknowledge our need. When we pray, we ask for provision. When we pray, we intercede for others. But I would contend with you that all of those things come under the umbrella and the banner of pursuing the presence of God. I just would contend with you that that is true because where do we lay down our burdens? In the presence. Where do we confess our sin? In the presence. Where do we see we receive provision? In the presence. Where do we make intercession? In the presence of God. It is prayer is ultimately about pursuing the presence of God. 
I said this past Wednesday night that prayer is the ultimate pathway for fellowship with God. Prayer is the ultimate pathway for life in the Spirit. Prayer is the ultimate pathway to experience His manifest presence. And I want you to to hear me, church. Prayer is the means by which we cling to God. If you were here Wednesday night, you heard me say that. Prayer is the means by which we cling to God. How many of you can remember a moment where your kid got really scared or you as a kid got really scared, right? And there's a moment when a kid gets scared and they see their parent or their grandparent, right? It happened for me when the neighbor's dog, who I was convinced when I was a kid was an actual werewolf, and on full moons we just had to hide, right? I just believed they had a werewolf that lived at their house, and this dog would get out, and he was mean, and I never understood why we didn't just, you know, help it go to heaven, and um, because it was a terrible animal, (laughs) but that dog had gotten after me, and I remember running, and my dad came out, and I didn't run to my dad and have a conversation about my fear. I ran to my dad, left the ground, and clung to him. Right? Get me away from this danger. How many of you had your kids just leave the They didn't wait for you to pick them up. They were crawling on you, right? Prayer is the means by which we cling to God. And then, listen, it is the cord that binds us there. Prayer is the means by which we throw our arms around the Father. And then it's the cord that ties us and holds us to him, right? So this is ultimately about pursuing the manifest presence of God. And this is what James is calling the church back to. He's calling the church back to prayer and the pursuit of the presence of God because something had been lost for them. Something had been lost. Their heart, the hearts of these believers had become, um, it had become sidetracked. They had become uh, deluded with pursuing things of the world. And there was this dysfunction that was happening among them because of it. Go back to verse 1 in James chapter 4. Look up a few verses and look how James describes the condition of the people that he just told to draw near to God. Look at what he says. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? How many have ever been a part of a church that had a few quarrels and some fights? Man, we can, we can duke it out better than any worldly organization. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see how their desires are all out of alignment here, right? He says you're passionate, but about the wrong thing, and it's at war within you. You desire, but you don't have. You covet what others have, but you're not obtaining, and there's fighting, and there's quarreling. And he says you do not have. Because you do not ask. 
What is James saying? I think he's saying there's this lack of contentment. There's this lack of satisfaction and fulfillment because you aren't asking for the one thing that can satisfy. He said you weren't praying. You weren't pursuing the presence of God. And he goes on to say, you ask and do not receive because you, are ask, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, and even when you do pray, it's, it's with selfish motives. You're wanting the things of God, not the presence of God. And I told you, sometimes James is a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. I want to be offended by that, it's, but I can't because it's true. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If the people who call Jesus Lord ever got serious about James 4, verse 4, right there, It would change the world. Because if God's people would stop toying with the world, when he says friendship with the world, what he means is if you try to hold on to worldly things and worldly possessions and worldly pursuits and worldly acclamation and worldly position and worldly prestige and worldly affirmation and you want you want the praise of people and you want the stuff of this world and the comfort of this world, as long as that is what you're pursuing, this is this. It makes you the enemy of the presence of God. Does anybody feel that with me right now? And James is saying you're no longer pursuing the presence of God. Hear me for just a moment. It doesn't mean they weren't Christians. It means that their highest passions, their highest pursuits, what they longed for most was not the presence of Jesus. They were just happy with the things of this world and keeping Jesus as a part of their life, but not in the middle of their life, not the pursuit of their life, and their relationship with God had become transactional. It was a transactional relationship. Because of it, there's this dysfunction, and there's this division, and there's hatred, and their prayer life was suffering. James said, you're asking, you're praying, but you aren't receiving, right? And so the Bible calls us back to pursuing the manifest presence of God in our praying. Because when the manifest presence of God shows up, and when we are in the manifest presence of God, hear me, everything changes. Everything changes. Suddenly we are asking God, but we're asking God rightly because our desires and our motives come into alignment with His purposes. We're confessing our sin and we're being met with mercy. We're acknowledging our need, we're being met with provision. We're acknowledging our confusion and our need for discernment and we're met 
with wisdom. These are the things that happen in the manifest presence of God and do not happen otherwise. How do we know? A minute ago I asked, how many of you can confidently say, I have been in a service or a church or prayer meeting where the manifest presence of God showed up? How do we know when the manifest presence of God shows up in a place? I said earlier it's measurable, right? What I mean by that is there are going to be some things that start to happen where you're, going to be, you're not going to be able to deny that God's presence came into the room. So I want you to see some of these things. I'm going to just put them up. I'm going to work through them quickly. You can take a picture of them if you want. These are some of the things that begin to, and this is not everything, but these are some of the things that begin to happen when the manifest presence of Jesus breaks into a space. One of the things that happens is there is a supernatural peace and freedom that settles on the room. This is one of the markers I've noticed when the God's presence falls on a Wednesday night. All of a sudden, there's a freedom that breaks out in here, and our worship shifts gears, and our confession gets honest, and there is peace that starts to move among us. This is one of the things that happens when the presence of Jesus is manifested. Wherever the presence of Jesus is manifested, God begins to occupy our minds, and He becomes the dominant figure in the room. God becomes the dominant figure in the room. Wherever the presence of Jesus is manifested, there is a, de- a natural desire in the room to be unrushed. I hear you, Baptist. I know here in a few minutes, y'all are going to stop checking them phones and you're going to start looking at your watch. I know. I've been in prayer meetings that went on for two or three hours and I didn't even realize it because the manifest presence of God had showed up and it felt like 10 minutes. There have been times I've prayed at this altar for what felt like a handful of minutes and a half hour or 45 minutes had gone by and I didn't even realize it. Why? Because when the presence of God shows up, there's a natural desire that is born to just linger with Him and to be unrushed. Boy, the clock can sure be the enemy of the Holy Spirit in our lives, can't it? Wherever the presence of Jesus is manifested, there's a supernatural joy and delight. And it doesn't mean everything's going perfect. It just means God showed up and the fullness of joy came with Him. Where the presence of Jesus is manifested, there is a fresh outpouring of love for God in our hearts, suddenly we stop singing songs and we start worshiping Jesus. We stop saying words that don't mean anything to us and we start crying out praises to the Lord. There's a genuine confession and repenting of sin. This becomes, I believe, the great lid for why most people, most believers, do not experience the manifest presence of God in their life. Because there's not the honest confession of sin. We're going to deal with that in just a moment. Whenever the presence of Jesus is manifested, there is a desire for our hearts to be fully set on God as our ultimate devotion. And then, when the presence of Jesus shows up, there are often signs and wonders 
are what we would call miracles. Now, if you're a good Southern Baptist like me, that language makes you just a skosh nervous. You're like, there's some places where that language is very welcome. We got to work to be a little more comfortable with it in here, don't we? Just acknowledge it. It's okay. Me too. But when I say signs and wonders and miracles, what I mean is when Jesus' presence manifests in a place, things begin to happen that only he can do. Right? We start to see things happen that no amount of preaching can accomplish. There are things that begin to happen that we can't manufacture. Meaning, lost people get saved. Disobedient people start being obedient. Honest confession of sin begins to take place. People start to be baptized who've known they've needed to be and just wouldn't do it. Right? God starts to move in a powerful way. Suddenly you start seeing reconciliation happen. You start seeing relationships restored to one another. And yes, there are times you will see medical, physical healings. We've seen it. I want you to hear me say, you are in a church where we have prayed for a miracle to happen in a body and the miracle happened. You're in that place right now. I'll never back away from the reality that God is a God who performs miracles in our lives because I've seen it. So you start to see these things. What's, what's the point here? The point is there are ways that God wants to move. And prayer, 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 humble, honest, earnest, constant prayer is the ultimate way we have been given to pursue the manifest. Let me ask you something. Don't you want more? Put that back up for just a minute. Don't you want more of that? Don't you long for more of that to be the reality, for peace and freedom to just get on you, for God to be the dominant figure in your life? Don't you just want more of that? For, the, for, for, for your life to stop feeling so rushed so you could just linger with God for supernatural joy? If what you want is more of that, prayer is how you get it. Because prayer is how we pursue the manifest presence of God. That measurable God shows up and nobody can deny. So first thing, here's the second thing I want you to see from James 4. God promises that when we pursue His manifest presence, He will give it. He promises that when we pursue him this way, he will give it. Look at the rest of James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. That is incredible news. That is unbelievable. That despite my unfaithfulness, Despite my pursuit of worldly things, despite my wrong motives and my impure heart, God invites me back. God uh, promises that he will receive me and says, the moment that I turn, he'll draw near to me. If I draw near to him, he will draw near to me. And hear me, don't hear me saying, you've got to go 90% and God will go 10%. Hear me saying, if you will Turn, he will meet you. If you will stop and turn and take one step, he will meet you. He'll meet you. 
He will draw near to you. When Jesus said in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if, if anyone hears my voice, meaning they will, have, they will open their spiritual ears to know I desire to be with them. They hear my voice and opens the door, draws near to me. Then I will do everything else that's needed. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's why Jesus said in Luke 11, ask, seek, knock, pursue more of the Holy Spirit. It's why he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And what I will do is take your burden and I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. What's the prerequisite? That we come to him, that we take that step, that we draw near to him and he will draw near to us. God has made clear that there is more of himself he wants to give us. But we must draw near and when we do, he does. When we do, he does. How many of you, if you, I want you to think about your life's great friends, right? One of the things we try to teach our kids is you don't need 50 friends, right? That just makes me anxious, thinking about having to be sweet to 50 people, right? I can't be, have 50 friends. You know what I need? I need two or three ride-or-die friends. Are you with me? I need two people who know I'm, I'm dumb and they're dumb and we call each other dumb and we just get in the saddle and try to keep each other from making the dumbest mistakes, right? We just are with one another. I need two or three of those to get in the saddle with me. And I've tried to teach my kids, you don't have to like, be liked by everybody, but you need one or two who will get in the saddle and live life with you, right? But imagine who that person is for you. Now, I want you to imagine they've come to your house and they're at your front door. I want you to see your friend there. I want you to have their face in your mind, put them at the front door of your house, and they are knocking and they're calling your name, right? Just knocking. They're calling, saying, Sean, I'm here, right? Larry, hey, Larry, I'm here, I'm here, right? I'm, I'm knocking. Wes, I'm out here. Wes, you, you, you asked me to come. I'm out here. I'm knocking. And you just ignore them. <laughs> you just leave them outside, banging the door, and ignore them. Nobody in this room would do that. And yet, that is how we treat the presence of Jesus. That's how we treat... The presence of Jesus. And I think there's just some people, what you want Jesus to do is kick in the front door of your house, force himself in, force you to sit down, and him to sit down, and he just forces you to do all of that. I want to tell you something. That is not what God does. That is not what God does. Jesus will never force his way into a place where he is not desired. The Holy Spirit will never force his way into your life if you do not desire for him to be there. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. But if you'll get up and open the door, what is that? It's drawing near. That's desire. 
I'll come in. I'll do everything else after that. I'll come in. We'll fellowship. I'll draw near to you. So we either treat Jesus like that, the friend that we ignore at the door, or I think sometimes we treat Jesus like, um, like a food delivery person. How many of you have ever used DoorDash? How many of you have no idea what DoorDash is, right? Don't use it, right? Uh, uh, but if you've ever used DoorDash, this is a food delivery service, right? You order food through DoorDash, and somebody that you don't know is going to go pick your food up, handle your food, and bring your food to your house, and it's just fingers crossed that they don't lick it on the way over. That's all I'm saying. I don't trust it. I don't, I don't trust it. So <laughs> I don't know what you did to that pizza on the way to my house. Mm-mm, I'm coming to your house. I'll come to you. I'll get it, right? But we treat Jesus like that. Meaning, we call on him, and we ask him to bring the blessing, but we say, if you'll leave it at the door, I'll get to it in a minute. I want the blessing, but you can't come in. Leave what I want, but don't come in. In other words, God, I want you to fix some things that are messed up in my life, but I don't want to surrender a single thing to you. God, I want you to provide financially for my family unless it means I have to stop spending my money the way I want. This is, there's no such thing as DoorDash praying. It's just no, it's not real. Or you may do it, but that's what James means when he says you ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly. And my question is, why? And I'm not asking you, I'm asking me. Why are we so resistant to this? Why are we so resistant to this? And I think we're resistant because of what comes next in the text. I think we're resistant. What does this look like? If this is what we need, if our prayer should be in pursuit of the presence of God and this is what we need, and this is what we want to experience, then how do we pursue the manifest presence of God? How do we hear Him knocking and open the door and draw near? There's two aspects to this pursuit. Here's the first one. Honest confession. Honest confession. Look at the rest of James 4.8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is using Levitical, he's using Levitical imagery to describe what the people would do in order to enter into the temple and enter into the presence of God. He's using imagery from the Old Testament to describe what the priest would have to go through in order to go into the place of of sacrifice, right? In order for them to enter into the presence of God, there had to be preparation and family. Hear me, believer, hear me. It is still true today. We do not just magically wake up in the manifest presence of God. There's preparation that has to be done. There has to be a cleansing and a purifying. James says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, Notice he, I love that he pointed it out that way. Cleanse your hands. What is he talking about? That's the things we do. That's the actions of our body, right? Cleanse your hands, meaning confess those things where you have sinned with your body, with your hands. And then he says, purify your hearts. What is he talking about? 
the mind, the affections, the motives. So he's talking about actions. He's talking about affections. He's talking about what you do, and he's talking about what you feel and what you think. And it has to be the reality of dealing with both of these. Here's why. Here's what I know is true in my own heart. Rarely does sin with my body. No, sin in my body begins with sin in my heart. Every time. Every time. I never wake up and my hand's just out here sinning and I'm unaware of it. Right? If your mouth is lying, you know it. If you're exaggerating for no reason, you're aware of it. Right? If you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, that's not news to you. You want to know why? The sin began in your heart. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And James is saying there has to be honest confession. Honest confession. In order to be purified, in order to be cleansed. Why? Because you cannot be cleansed from what you will not acknowledge. Do y'all feel that with me right now? You cannot be purified and cleansed, family, from what you are unwilling to acknowledge is an issue in your life. And it's why we are very comfortable speaking in generalities when it comes to our sin and very uncomfortable naming it. It is easy for us to say, forgive me of my many sins, and to generalize and to speak in this broad generality, forgive me of my many sins. That's easy. It is hard to say, God, I've made a habit of looking at things on social media and on the internet that I have no business setting my eyes on. It's harder to say that. It's easy to say, God, forgive me of my many sins. It is much harder to say, God, there is arrogance and pride and jealousy in my heart toward that person, and I need it to change. That's much harder to say. It's easy to say, God, forgive me of my many sins. It is much harder to say, Jesus, I love food and sleep and comfort and money more then I love you. That's harder to say. Do you feel the difference in those, though? And I would tell you, for many of you, there is a lid on what you experience in the presence of God because you would rather generalize. And you'll never be free from what you're unwilling to acknowledge. And there will be a lid to what the Holy Spirit will do in your life until you're willing to get out of that generalization and get down at the root of the sin in your life and point at it and give it a name and find some freedom from it. It's honest, honest confession. Can I tell you something that happens when we do confess honestly, though? When the Holy Spirit starts to stir in our life, and I believe he's stirring in your heart right now because I believe when we start to talk about specific sins, if you belong to, the, to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going, yep, there they are. Yeah. 
in your life. When the Holy Spirit starts to stir us with conviction, when we respond to that conviction with honest confession, specific, honest confession, not holding back, not rational, we confess it, we stand in agreement with the Holy Spirit. Yes, that is sin, that's what it is, and we confess that. Do you know what happens? It stirs him up even more. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts to move even more, and he goes deeper with us, and he goes to work deeper in us and through us, and we begin to experience him more, and his voice becomes even clearer around us. But hear me, the opposite is true as well. When the Holy Spirit stirs up and he begins to point out those sins, if we don't honestly confess them, it quenches him, and he does not draw near. It repels his presence. It's why prayer It's why confession and repentance is the most important part of our praying. Because it deals with the very things that have hindered the work of God and hindered the manifest presence of God in our life. And I think it's why it's possible, and I think it happens every Wednesday and every Sunday. It is possible for people to come to church and to come to pray and to come to prayer on Wednesday night and not feel a thing and sit in their seat and go, God, is it doing anything in my life? It could very well be because there's some honest confession that needs to happen. And it's time to get real before the Lord. Because the more we get honest, the more we stand in agreement with the Holy Spirit, the more we come into alignment with the Holy Spirit and the more of Him we receive. Honest confession. Here's the next thing. Humble repentance. I know these aren't new words, but my prayer has been that it would be fresh in our hearts this morning. Honest confession, humble repentance. So what you see in in verse 9 and 10, there's three or four Uh, uh, imperatives that James gives us, but these are not three or four things that we do individually. They are three or four commands to do one thing, repent. That's what these are. Look at verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Hear me, if what you love is comfort, you do not know how to do that. If you love comfort, more than the presence of God, then being broken over your sin is not a reality that you'll have. And I'm not saying that as a judgment. Hear me say it from experience. I love me some me. You know what I'm saying? And you love you some you. And we see verses like that, and they're repulsive to us. What is James really saying? When he says, be wretched and mourn, when he says, let your joy be turned to gloom, laughter to mourn, what is he saying? He is saying, stop acting like you are spiritually okay and reckon with the offense you have before the Lord. That's what he's saying. Do you hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 5? When he's speaking blessing, what are the first two Beatitudes? Blessed are the what? What's the first one? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see I am in spiritual poverty. What is the next one? Blessed are those who what? 
mourn, who are broken over their sin. They grieve the fact that they have sinned against God. The next one says, blessed are the meek, those who are willing to humble themselves and repent. And you know what Jesus says about those who are poor and mourning their sin and humble about it? He says, they get the kingdom. You get the kingdom of God. You get the presence of God when you do that. And you miss it when you don't. There are too many times I want to domesticate my repentance. I just want it to be easy. And so often what I think happens in the room is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit will be on us, telling us we need to go forward, telling us we need to leave our seat and come pray at the altar, telling us we need to go confess a sin to someone, telling us we need to get on our knees and cry out to the Lord, but then our flesh starts to fight against it, and because of pride, we quench the work of the Holy Spirit because we just... We cement our feet to the floor and we start to say things like, God, I'll just internalize it. We'll just just be me and you right now. I'll just internalize this. Nobody has to know that I'm dealing with it. Nobody has to know that I'm broken. And it's not because there's something magical about the altar. It's because there's something supernatural about humility. There's something supernatural when you stand Step out and you acknowledge, I am broken and there's sin in my life. And if I can't get honest before God and before the people of God, I'm lost. I'm hopeless. And all I'll ever have is the best that sin can offer me. That's all I'll ever have in this life. The very best that sin can give me. But hear me, God wants more for you, believer. God wants to give you more of himself, more of his presence. And the path to that is honest confession and humble repentance. I think the presence of God drives us to the position of unashamed, humble, broken surrender. Can I tell you something? You will never find more joy than you do in being honest and humble in the presence of God. There is joy for you. And I see some of you are looking at me right now and you're thinking, not in a million years am I getting at that altar, Bubba. You can forget it. Hear me. This, this altar is not magical. But there is a thing when the Holy Spirit begins to stir in you, when he speaks to your heart about sin in your life, when that happens, when there's that internal experience, every other eternal, internal experience we have with God demands an outward expression. Every one of them. When I am stirred up to praise, it better come out of my mouth. Right? When I am stirred up to be generous, I better take that money out and give it. When I'm stirred up to pray for somebody, I better go to them and pray. And when I am stirred up to repent and be broken, I better get into a posture of humility. And it may very well be the lid on your experience of the presence of God is that you have decided nobody has to know that I'm broken. And yet, James says, be wretched and weep and mourn. In other words, be broken over your sin. 
What's the result of this? Look at James chapter 4, verse 10. Next verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. If all there was was brokenness, if all there was was being wretched and mourning and weeping, if that's all there was, this would be a pretty dismal relationship with God, wouldn't it? But instead, what he says, if you're willing to be broken over your sin and to be humble before the Lord, he will exalt you. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's going to make much of us. It doesn't mean he's going to lift us up and make us super uh, awesome and make us be the center of attention of our lives. Here's what it means. When God exalts us, it means we come to life. It means we come to life. It means he brings us back to life. It means that those places where we have been eating the crumbs of sin and worldliness and godlessness and we've been pursuing desires of the flesh and we've been eating all those crumbs spread around, it means he exalts us, he lifts us up and sets us at the table of feasting in his presence. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will bring you back to life. And every area of your life that has grown dead because of sin, he will cause to come back to life. He will exalt you. So I want you to hear me, and then we're going to pray. I'm going to call you to pray. There are some of you in this room this morning, and you do not have a relationship with God. You do not have a relationship with Jesus. never given your heart to him and made him Lord of your life. And I think you know it when I say that. I think you're sitting here and you know that's true. Because when you look at your life, your life is marked by doing what you want for you, how you want, living for the things that you want. And every now and then you go to church and you may pray and you try to be a good person. But if I were to ask, is your life marked by being surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? You would have to say, no, it's not. And it's because what you need is a relationship with Jesus. And here's how you get that. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you. I know I don't have a right relationship with God and you're the way to that relationship, and I receive you as my Lord. I submit my, I surrender myself, and I just want to receive you as Lord of my life. If you need Jesus as Lord this morning, then right now, just in your heart, pray that, God, save me, save me. I want what I see. It looks like other people have They have something I don't have. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation, and he will save you. If that's you this morning, as soon as we start singing, I want you to be so courageous. 
So right now, the enemy's saying, don't do what he's about to say. And I am saying, step out and come forward. Step out and come grab one of these people and say, that's me. I, got, I need to make Jesus Lord of my life today. And I want every one of us to hear this. God is ready to open his arms to you, to restore those who will draw near to him, who, who are just looking at God saying, would you just bring me back to life? Right now, in this room, he wants to do it. Right now, at this very moment, in the darkness of our sin, the experience of God's nearness is not out of reach. He is here. He's ready to revive you with his presence. Our job is to draw near to him in humility and in honesty, in prayer, to draw near to God and just trust he is going to draw near to us. So I'm going to pray. We're going to start to sing. And some of you need to come to the altar for the first time ever. And you need to just be honest. Say, there's sin in my life and I need to come confess it. I've pursued the things of the world and I need to come have honest confession and humble repentance. In fact, I think probably most of us need to do that. If coming to the altar is physically difficult for you, I would say in your seat, you stay seated, hands over your face, just head bowed in humility. Confess it. Don't generalize it. Give it a name. Say it out loud. Repent and turn. Draw near and let him pour out in your life. If you need to make Jesus Lord, you come. If you need to confess, you come. Come to repent. Come to draw near. Come to experience the manifest presence. Father, I pray that you would just move among us. That there would just be an undeniable outpouring of your presence right now. Holy Spirit, meet with us. Help us meet with you. Draw near to us. Help us draw near to you. We pray that in Jesus' name.